It's mostly used by young men who are poking and causing trouble on social media. That's mostly what it's used for. But you're supposed to be anti-chaos and anti-provocation. I'm just wondering why you would choose to be in this photo. Well, I've probably had my photo taken with five or 6,000 people in the last year. No, but this year, is so. with a Pepe flag. I understand I mean, that. you know yeah. that, that this is now seen as a, as a symbol for the old. The well, old I did a video online called The Metaphysics of Pepe with Jonathan Paggio, who's an orthodox carver of icons. And if, you, if people are interested in my views on what's happening with this particular symbol and why it's occurring, then there's a two-hour discussion about that. Richard Spencer wears a Pepe. He's a white supremacist. He wears the Pepe symbol. It's become adopted, I'm sure you know this, by, by the far right. And here you are holding up a flag like it's, it's a joke. So I just wonder if, if it could be misinterpreted by people that you're trying to send a message that I think it has been misinterpreted. I didn't know when it was happening. I mean, it's hard. To, I don't know what you mean exactly. There were a lot of people lined up. They were doing a lot of things. This was one of the things. It took about 30 seconds. It's the one thing that, that, that has been photographed that the left in particular has been used to, using against me for the last year. But it was just happenstance more than anything else. Do you know most guy... of the people who are using this sort of symbol are using it in a deeply satirical way. Now, the fact that the far right has decided that um, it's, it's, it's a, what, a radical indicator of, of the validity of their particular view doesn't mean that that's what it is. So it's something that we haven't seen before. There's a it's lot of we, game playing going on yeah, there online. Is a, there is a, a lot, lot of game playing. Okay, greetings everybody. Hello friends, it's Chapo, we're back again. It's uh, just me and Matt coming at you today, but we are not alone. We have uh, two guests joining us today. It is Arthur Jones and Giorgio Angelini to talk about their new film. They're the creative minds and geniuses and documentarians behind the new feature film, Feels Good Man, a documentary about Matt Fury and the strange and twisted saga of Pepe in the in this new sort of meme universe that we live in, where all meaning, symbol, sign, and signifier have been totally loosed from any bonds to one another, and it just becomes a kaleidoscope of unmeaning. I mean, essentially, uh, I'm, I'm sure you know listeners will be aware of the Pepe phenomenon, but you know, your guys' movie is about the creator of Pepe, and I would just sort of compare it to like, imagine if. Bill Waterston found out that the, the Calvin peeing on things drawing that was a copyright infringement of his work became the exclusive providence of uh, fascists and neo-Nazis. That's Instead basically what, what happened to Matt. it actually is, which is the emblem of cool dudes. Totally awesome dudes. Cars. Unless you're a Chevy guy, then you're not cool. <laughs> so, uh, Giorgio and Arthur, I guess I just want to start, like, I mean... Like I said, like listeners of the show, I'm sure will be familiar with the Pepe meme phenomenon, but maybe not how it started. And I guess, were you guys aware of Matt Fury's work before you were aware of Pepe, or did you find out about Matt Fury through the Pepe phenomenon? Like, when when did Pepe first get come into your consciousness? Uh, Pepe first came in my consciousness from the comic book. Uh, I'm an indie comics collector, and I'm a illustrator and cartoonist, and um, that's how I came to this film. Uh, less so as a documentarian and more as a motion graphics artist and cartoonist. 
And um, so, yeah, I had bought Boys Club comics probably in like 2008 or 2009. And so when I started to see Pepe pop up in the news or on like message boards, I always had this sense that like, oh, Pepe's lost. The prodigal son has left the building like this is weird. Um, And I think that was something that kind of initially drew me to the story was because when I'd see Pepe out in the world, I always felt like maybe I understood the narrative in a slightly different way because I was a fan of Matt's artwork. And then when I moved to California, I met Matt on a hike with some friends. It was like a big group hike. And um, we hiked to a hot springs and camped that night. And uh, Matt and I just got along really well. And, um, yeah, when I first met him, I knew he was the boys club guy. I felt a little starstruck. And then as we became friends, I would talk to him about Pepe sometimes. And he, he was mostly oblivious to the stuff was going on online or when I would talk to him about, you know, this stuff in like 2000, late 2015, it seemed to be taking a real toll on him. Yeah. Giorgio, how about you? Uh, I came, I really just, a uh, your typical internet ex- experience of Pepe. Like I was on Reddit in the early days and just knew him as a meme. And so when Arthur came to me with the story idea, I, my mind just started racing with all the potentials because I felt a, just like embarrassed that I didn't know anything about the backstory, but then obviously really got interested in what this story could talk about in the kind of broader sense within the culture. Like those are always the kinds of documentary projects I get really excited about either watching or or working on or like really specific stories that have like a much broader cultural context and like Pepe is kind of like the most absurdist version of that and in, in the best possible way. Um, but for people like who, who are maybe unaware, could you, could you describe oh. who, who Matt Fury is and like what boys club was and like how, how the, like what the original Pepe character, like who, who was he and like what, you know, uh, what, like how did he fit into like the boys club universe and like what did he represent to Matt Fury and its original creation? Sure. Um, you know, uh, so Pepe was um, an obscure but well-loved indie comics character before he was ever a meme. And he was in this comic named Boys Club that Matt started drawing in the mid-2000s while Matt was working at a thrift store. And his job working at the thrift store was to sift through toys that had been donated. So Matt would be like going through like, you know, stuffed animals of like old Sesame Street characters and this sort of stuff. And as he was like sifting through these toys, he started to make this comic book called Boys Club. And the characters in Boys Club very much look like discarded toys or like deformed Muppets or something like that. And so Pepe was part of a foursome. um, And it's described in the film like Emily Heller, who's a comedian, describes Pepe as sort of like the Elaine. Um, You know, (laughs) he was like kind of like the good natured, like you know, secondary character in the comic. The breakout star of Boys Club is actually a character named Landwolf, who's this sort of like party, like this party wolf, and um, <laughs> who's always kind of like he's like a jackass kind of character. And then there's there's Brett, who's like this pansexual, flamboyant sweetheart. And then there's Andy, and Andy is kind of this yellow dog, maybe a dog. Like all of Matt's comics, he kind of can't tell the exact animal, maybe except for Pepe. He's obviously a frog, but then there's this like sarcastic dog named Andy and the, the comics aren't really like narratively complicated. They're more like one liner comics. Um, and Matt drew them in his twenties, mostly to like entertain himself and his friends. And then he left them behind in like around 2012 and mostly worked as a fine artist. So 
all the meme stuff was happening in a way that he was totally oblivious to, or initially he thought was just kind of like this crazy thing that was happening. And he always thought about it kind of like, um, uh, Jerry Garcia and tape trading. Like he would, he would, he thought that like, Oh, well people like Pepe. So they're making their own bootleg versions of Pepe and trading them themselves. And, um, so that was like his initial thinking about it. Yeah. But like the comic of like feels good, man really was like the, there was like a specific, there's a specific reason why the film is called feels good, man. Cause it really comes from a panel from one of the zines where Pepe is caught peeing with his pants around his ankles and like his friends kind of make fun of him and they're like, what are you doing? It's like, I don't know. It feels good, man. And that kind of flippant catchphrase just for whatever fucking reason just caught on, I guess first within workout boards. I was hoping maybe Felix could talk to this maybe because I know he likes to lift. Uh, but um, yeah. And then it just kind of took off from there. Well, yeah, you, you bring up workout boards and it's like, <laughs> this, this was the, this is the initial like sort of seating of of Pepe, who is this sort of um I don't know like a, a, sort of a Cheshire cat kind of character. It has a sort of like a certain wry smiling quality, but also a certain knowingness that lends itself to I think this kind of multivariate interpretation and sort of like endless meme ability. There's just there's a little like Mona Lisa smile I think in in, in this Pepe that leads to you know like people to read in almost anything they want to it. But like you you guys trace back like this is. The sort of the patient zero, this crossover point where it went from being a you know much much love but rather sort of cult indie comic to this piece of like meme currency, and it started with workout forum bodybuilding forums, which also uh, were also like sort of beginning to um, incubate what would become sort of alt right online culture too. But like, do you, did you did you find like what was like what was the original like crossover point? How did that happen? Like how did that how did that shift go from being like a indie comic character to just like message board like image macro well it's funny the inciting incident for our movie the inciting incident for our movie is um is the moment that matt scans this page from issue two of boys club where pepe is peeing and says feels good man and then he puts it on myspace and it's a really ridiculous thing to be the inciting incident of a feature <laughs> film but that is what we're working with um, you know, and for whatever reason, uh, someone took this one image of Pepe in this one panel of this random comic book page, and that just turned into a reaction image. And um, I think there's something that just feels innately nostalgic about Pepe, but there's something cute and creepy about him that people immediately latched onto, people that had no knowledge of Matt's comics. And so, I mean, there's always been like, there's always overlap between the 4chan fit board and bodybuilding.com's fitboard. Um, so I certainly don't know the first person that sort of like posted Pepe as a reaction image, but that's definitely where it, both the catchphrase and the character became popular. Um, and then he started to get drawn over and over again by people. And I think he's just a fun character to draw. There's also this image of sad Pepe that was taken from another issue of Matt's comic and sad Pepe for whatever reason just became the signifier of like internet on we just, you know, people, yeah. people who felt sad online and um, those two sort of like emotional valences of the character really took off. And also, most <laughs> of all, that he's a disgusting fraud. <laughs> he's a disgusting. Because I don't. He, I don't. He's think a disgusting frog happened. who lives in a windowless apartment. It would not have happened. They would not. It would not have vibed with so many people if he was not gross. If there was not something uh, unappealing about him, like aesthetically, there's a commonality that, that in boys uh, uh, be relating to. 
Yeah. Yes, you're correct. There's a common alley in Boys Club where they live in a windowless room. They only eat junk food. <laughs> um, they they exist in a fog of their own stinky farts. Um, you know, it is something that I think feels just very like teenage and also like very like the shut in culture of people staying on these message boards and not really going outside and living inside the internet. Pepe really uh, appealed, appealed to them in a very like innate way. I, I think the interesting thing about about Boys Club being the, the genesis, like the original creation, is that the, the the world that Matt was depicting was one of kind of, yeah, like a, a, a mid-20s aimlessness of just sort of like not really having careers or like, you know, uh, good jobs or, or like having the being in that set of people who are like have graduated college and have a little like this sort of like aimless sort of extended adolescence of living and having fun with your friends and just sort of like eking out an existence, skateboarding and doodling and partying with your friends, but not really having any aim or direction. But like there was, it was always kind of a positive vision, you know, like Matt's life as you, you see depicted in the film is, is a nice one. You know, he's a fun, creative guy. He's got good friends. He's got a, a wife and a kid. Um, but like, but as you said, like it, once it, tra- once it became part of the internet, it became this stand in for like a, a similar kind of 20s aimlessness, but a very like a more sinister, a more like nihilistic and depressing right. one. Yeah. I mean, it's kind of skipping ahead, but like at the end of the film, uh, you know, our, our, our resident occultist says that Pepe is an omen really. And like, we have to listen to what he has to say. And, you know, of course there's a little wink, wink to that, but there is also a lot of truth to it. Like if you read, the boys club comics, like they do kind of celebrate a kind of slacker attitude, but there is a kind of critique on what, what Matt calls like the garbage world, right? There's like this one panel where he's eating this little bagel bite pizza. And it's, it's sort of satisfying his immediate needs for nutrition and saltiness and fat of the cheese and stuff. But he kind of understands implicitly that it's cheap frozen garbage. That's just kind of a, a quick rush. And there's something like very deeply connected to, the comic and the way that he looks and like why people kind of connected to his plight that I think really speaks way beyond this sort of disgustingness of what happened with him in 2015 and 2016. It's like really a kind of a broader thing about people just feeling alienated. Right. Yeah. And um, I mean, like a, a good like first third of the film before you even get into Trump and, and, and meme wars, meme magic and, and, you know, whether or not uh, this cartoon frog can be fairly just fairly qualified as a hate symbol by the ADL and other groups. Um, it, like, you know, when, when you're talking about like the, the 4chan era of Pepe, like you see all of these kind of like antisocial and like nihilistic attitudes towards society that hadn't yet gelled into a political direction or ideology or hadn't yet been co-opted by it. And I was just wondering, like, where did you find the, uh, like the, the guy in the documentary who is sort of like that you interview as a sort of like the stand in for 4chan. He was like, you know, like a oh. Pepe image guy. Like, where did you find him? And like, was there, were there anything about him like surprised you about like how he conceived of Pepe and like how 4chan sort of adopted it as their own, as like you said, like a stand in for not fitting into society for not being a normie. And like that, you know, Pepe was for people who didn't have a job or a girlfriend or like a future outside of the Internet. Yeah. Our goal in making the film was we didn't want to just have like a bunch of journalists talking about 4chan in predictable ways. We wanted the film to feature people who cared about Pepe in a way that is surprising. If you're someone that's just thinking about, you know, Pepe as a JPEG, you don't necessarily think that people have a emotional attachment to it. But people really did. 
And that was the part that was interesting to us as filmmakers is how do you sort of talk about emotion coalescing on these message boards? So um, I'd never been on 4chan uh, prior to starting feels good man. But once we decided to make the film, um, I hit the boards and spent several months just late at night sitting on the couch going through 4chan and the different archives of 4chan. And while I was there, um, you know, I, I knew we wanted to talk to someone who was uh, on 4chan, but people are anonymous on 4chan. And there's kind of this like people, people look down on you if you make yourself a public persona on 4chan. They think that you're trying to seek attention and that's looked down upon. And so I started to see an image of this guy on 4chan, specifically on the R9K board. And um, he on the R9K board seemed like he was emblematic of the other people on the board. They would post his pictures and be like, this is me, sort of. And I um, I found that that guy, whose name is Mills, um, had a YouTube presence. And there was an archive of older video vlogs he'd made. And I was looking at the grid of all of the videos he was making, and I picked on a random one that was just named with a date. And I clicked on that one, and it only had like maybe 20 views or something. And the first line in, in the video, it's him laying in bed. He holds his cell phone up as if he's about to go to sleep, and this is the one last thing he's going to say before he nods off. And he says, what does Pepe mean to me? And I got goosebumps. I was just like sitting there in my room, and it was dark, and I had a feeling like, oh, he's going to be in the film um, the things that surprised us about Mills um, was he really did have like an encyclopedic knowledge of 4chan. And that does make sense because people on 4chan really have a sense of self-importance about the board. They're obsessed with the history of the board. There's a, there's a board, there's a board within the 4chan uh, community called shit 4chan says. Um, it's all about so, self mythologizing. Yeah, it, totally. Yeah. So, you know, Mills Mills is a smart guy. He's a funny guy. Um, he's someone that can be infuriating because he definitely has just like grown up. His youth culture has been growing up in this echo chamber. So, um, you know, the lingo he uses, you know, the syntax that he uses is all based on this message board culture. So, um, you know, he was a gift to the film because I do think he really is emblematic of, of people who are on 4chan that feel a real sense of desperation, but then also like a really visceral sense of entitlement. Yeah. Like, you know, he feels like in a different era, things would have been different for him. He wouldn't mm. be living in a basement. He would probably have a girlfriend that he met in high school. He would have a job at a local business that would allow him to like buy a house. And so he'd rather be on 4chan than like working at the gas station. And he feels as though society has cornered him into that, situation i mean again like just to think about the contrast between uh, like the 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 life of the neat as he describes himself as the not in education or uh, not in what is it education or, or training employment or like, employment, employment or education or training yeah and, and you know living in your mom's basement and essentially existing in this parallel social universe that is mediated by internet forums I mean, like just with the, the contrast again between M Matt Fury's life at a similar age and the comic Boys Club is portraying a kind of a, a, a sort of deadbeat, a kind of down and out existence, but still essentially a, a fun and kind of wholesome one. But interestingly, like the, the Matt Fury like life, it wasn't these people were pursuing creative endeavors outside of the Internet. Like they had like an outlet for their for their thoughts, their imagination, their creativity that was not mediated by like I said, the, the culture of online forums. And it was, I think, probably just a little bit earlier 
than like before like the the internet became such a leviathan thing like colonizing every aspect of our our minds and lives and i'm just wondering like I, like it just you know could could mills have had like a a, a funner cooler deadbeat life without without the internet i don't know yeah i mean it's something he himself talks about all the time right it's about like getting stuck in the vortex of shit that he's constantly in it's like ironically Many people on 4chan see their natural enemies as kind of normy Instagram culture, but in a lot of ways, it's like it operates in a very similar way, right? Like you, you're, yeah. you're all vying for a kind of attention, and you're producing a certain kind of content that's built to market to the certain consumer base that you're you're trying to gain, uh, you know, goodwill from. And so it kind of it's like the snake eating its own tail, right? And and for Mills, who feels like society has nothing to offer him, which you know I think is debatable and of course the rest of society is dealing with the same shit he is and you know we're all fucking making do and you know but his choice of course is to like continually go further and further down the rabbit hole and i know from speaking to him very plainly about it that like he's aware of that and you see it how people post about it all the time in fortune like hey guys this is my last post i'm gonna like sign off for good and then like two weeks later like oh i can't do it like i really you know it's it's you want to empathize with it, but at the same time, you also sometimes just want to shake these people. <laughs> well, the thing, I mean, if that's your only coping mechanism, right. And, and you can't just go cold Turkey in a life that is otherwise unbearable with nothing totally. to replace that mechanism with. Right. And I think most, and because there's really no, there is no discussion. There's no idea of what you could even start doing differently in your life right that could make you not need that there is no way you'll ever not turn back to it no because otherwise the pain is still there the the anxiety is still there and it's still to you it's the only thing that you know has any effect yeah and the internet and video games make it very uh, easy and luxurious to sort of sit in that moment right it's it's easier to just wallow and be a, a pliant consumer of these very kind of immediately gratifying experiences I mean, i've certainly myself been in that kind of like vortex in some sense so like I, I definitely can feel it and um you know it's easy to to fall in the despair for sure and 4chan romanticizes that despair yeah yeah that's the it's like yeah. if if you yeah. break the code of 4chan it's actually like it's viewed almost as a weakness like you you didn't have what it takes to become like the most nihilistic you know dead inside person <laughs> Yeah, and that like, and that if you if you if you begin to break out of it or advertise uh, any level of uh, uh, emotional growth or maturity or financial independence, then like, then yeah, you're a loser, you're a fag, you're you're yeah, that's breaking the code, and it's just like yep. it's this you're perverse a, you're a wage slave. You're, yeah, yeah, it's this stuff. perverse mirror image of like you mentioned that like it's very much a reaction against the culture of like Instagram, which is about you know advertising how fun and cool your life is and how attractive you are or twitter where you're doing it for uh, sort of like a cloud or a career or like to be part of like a media discourse or intellectual conversation whereas fortune is like it is so self-consciously doing the opposite of all of that but yet at the same time is creating the same sort of like dopamine feedback loop but is only exclusively rewarding the negative rather than the annoyingly shallow or or attention seeking of other other social yeah. media platforms Right. And what I will say to Matt's point, which I thought was well put, was 4chan, though, really does view itself as a creative community. So while Matt's creative com- community in his 20s was obviously much different, based in a group of artists hanging out, 
being social together, having like, you know, fun. 4chan does view itself as a slightly earlier version of the internet where it really was. They could be left alone. They could be as edgy as they wanted. They could make the jokes they wanted to make. Um, they could um, create an economy that wasn't based around like people's appearances, but ra- based around sort of, you know, their wit or whatever they would be able to say in like a green yeah. tech story or something. So part of their rebellion against normie culture is also a culture that they think is devoid of creativity. Yeah. And like, they're, they're not totally wrong either. You know, I mean, right. like, like you can, you can see, you know, the, the appeal of these kind of things. And, you know, I think one of the talking heads that you talked about, who was sort of an expert on 4chan described that as like a place on the internet or just forget the internet in the, in the broader like culture at large in 21st century America, where it was okay to admit or talk about that your life sucks and that like, you know, you don't have a future and that you feel bad. You know, that's why feels good, man. This kind of the, the ironic clipped sort of meta context of all this. Cause it's like, you know, everyone feels bad all the time. No one feels fucking good about their yeah. life. And like the internet is like their one respite from that or the one place where not only is it okay to express those feelings, but is in fact like rewarded and encouraged by other people in this kind of this feedback loop of, and, and again, it's like, it's difficult because like I can see the need for that, but the, but with these forums and the internet and this kind of like virtual social life, it creates this feedback loop of people not just like expressing their shared anxieties or traumas or, or feelings of depression, but like encouraging it and creating a feedback loop of by which it like everyone gets worse at the same time rather than mm-hmm. ever breaks out of it. Mm-hmm. And that's what we really hope to show in the film. Like I was saying earlier is like we, you know, the, the internet has now figured out a way to basically take our emotions and exploit them for a variety of reasons. And, you know, Pepe really meant something to people, especially in like the 2014, 2015 moment. He was really indicative of a culture that they felt like was being like stolen or that people were coming in and invading. And so in order for people to understand that, they needed to understand what Pepe meant. They didn't need to necessarily understand like all the ins and outs of Gamergate or something. They really need to understand like, oh, this is an emotional coalition of people who live very mm-hmm. far apart from each other, but they have the shared grievance. And he is an, he is a symbol, an emblem for that grievance. And this is the sort of thing that we we thought we could really make a movie about because Pepe's this very flexible emotional avatar. And we could sort of structure the film around Pepe's emotions. He goes from feels good man to sad man to, you know, eventually Trump. Yeah. <laughs> to eventually stuffing people in a gas chamber. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. That's, what, that's what he switches. When Trump wins, that's when you, around that time is when you get the smug Pepe. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Because now they're not just having to ironically, you know, have, uh, have the internet as a place for them to therapeutically express their alienation. Now they can imagine that it's making other people miserable. Yes. Which can yeah. Then make them happy. They yeah. Can and like, and, over this. Yeah. And like, the, and that's, and that's the critical moment where it becomes from being this kind of, um, uh, sort of like the, the non meaning, the essential meaninglessness of it is, is, is what allows it this like endless variation and adoptability as a kind of symbol for meaninglessness as a, as a condition of human life. But the, the turn happens, or like you document it, like when it becomes something a little bit ha- with more of an edge, with a sharp point on it, that's meant to kind of be twisted into other people and be a kind of an avatar of cruelty towards other rather than despair in your own life, uh-huh. is at a certain moment, like with all internet memes, it reaches a kind of critical mass of popularity and saturation, and people outside this little like initiate, like 
cultish uh, like group begin to use it on themselves and sort of like, uh, I, I guess they would regard that as kind of like a meme gentrification. And you talk about how like Katy Perry and like Nicki Minaj posted like Pepe images and they were like, you know, just trying to do Pepe memes. And that was the moment where they were like, okay, well, like if, if we can't have these memes out here being taken by, by normies, so we need to make the memes as grotesque and offensive as possible to prevent them from being appropriated. And that's when it begins to take on kind of a, a political direction, right? Yeah, I mean, it's like a natural punk response. Like, I've been thinking about this a lot recently, but if you just kind of track the popularity of how just the punk movement came, it has a very similar trajectory, right? Like, it starts off as like a counterculture movement and a commentary on you know, the broader society as a whole, then it starts to become commodified or adopted amongst the normie base. And then the punk originators start to like take it to more and more extremes. Like the, the spike, literal spikes start showing up on, on the leather jackets and stuff. And to kind of just like make it as angry and grotesque as possible, but like they just can't beat the, the, the commoditization of it until it, it just kind of becomes Nazified really. Or like you, you start to see opportunists who kind of, come in and take advantage of, of these cultural markers for, for opportunistic reasons. Yeah. Yeah. And we should give a shout out to Dale Baran who wrote yeah. a book called it came from something awful. Cause he kind of, he also talks about 4chan um, and sort of it's, it, he talks about sort of how youth culture always gets gobbled up and turned into a marketing force in his book. So he does, he talks about punk and a variety of things as well. Um, you know, I think it's also interesting where you sort of see a group of people who, whether they've been bullied or not, I think is sometimes questionable, but they always feel as though society's really yeah. been bullying them. And the smug Pepe is sort of the face of that person who's like maybe standing on the outer ring of like a fight and they're enjoying someone getting a beat down. The bully is doing the beating, but they're standing to the side and they're like enjoying the moment as it is, as it's their own. And it really, you know, it really sort of ties into this larger revenge fantasy that a lot of Americans really get caught up in. Um, there's this massive sort of fetishization of revenge as being like a useful emotion and a thing that um, we all can sort of recognize, whether that's the sort of, in, you know, the enjoying the liberal tears smugly. Um, but, you know, all of the gun violence in America is really based around this sense of entitled revenge fantasy as well. And you, you talk about like and, and Mills himself talks about how like the, when the Elliot Rogers shooting happened, like the way the, the ease with which Elliot Roger and his manifesto like became a meme itself and a kind of avatar of that literal act of vengeance against like a society that they feel has rejected them. And like and like I said, like this is beginning like I get like again, this turn into the Donald Trump campaign, which is like the the ultimate manifestation of these of revenge against the broader society where it's like it's not just like the outsiders you know uh trying to piss you off or offend you or whatever like it is crossed over fully into reality and now like the person in the white house who won the fucking election was like tweeted a pepe image of himself and it became something where like in the, and this gets into like the 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 alan moore looking motherfucker you guys interviewed the the meme magic guy who you know it, it, it's sort I of always appreciate a watchman reference yeah yeah it's it, it's sort of tongue-in-cheek and i remember like during the 2016 campaign when like all you know reading all these people to be like memes made donald trump happen meme magic the left can't meme and just rolling my fucking eyes at it but like <laughs> this guy i even tongue-in-cheek kind of makes like a pretty Pretty interesting case that there is a kind of symbolic collective magic that's going on here that like whether it, it is like a real literal one to one thing, it, you know, obviously 
you can believe in magic or not, but like the <laughs> results of it, like if it were magic, would it look any different than what it actually turned out to be? Exactly. Yeah, I mean, yeah, there was a we when we were filming that Giorgio left in the middle, middle of the interview to go buy him a bottle of whiskey because we were both like, oh, we, that was kind of like maybe going to be experimental interview. And then midway through, we were both like, wow, this has gotten very heavy and very good. <laughs> of course, it took a magician to like explain all this shit in the most cogent way. Like after a year and a half of like interviewing journalists and on the ground, like with people like Mills and like then this magician shows up and I'm like, that's it. Now I understand. It's a, yeah. it's, it's this kind of inexplainable thing, right? Cause on the paper, it's like, why would a bunch of people who kind of self identify as losers find themselves in alliance with like the biggest, dumbest bully on the planet who could care less, who would like, would find these people in any other situation completely inconsequential and shit all over them at any opportunity. And it's like, actually, it's the first time I've heard Arthur kind of use that analogy about like the people on the outside of the, ring of a fight like watching the bully beat up someone else it's kind of yeah. actually a really good analogy yeah no like i i think so much of that like like alt-right ideology yeah i think that's a perfect way of thinking about it it's like you know you're never going to be the bully yourself you're not going right. to be the chad you're the virgin but what you can be is sort of like the bully's renfield this sort of like uh, obsequious <laughs> toady that, that 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 revels in the evil of like a stronger figure who is like and, and then you are sort of basking in its received glow is that like for the time being it won't be you know like be trained on you and in your wretched life instead you can revel in the the cruelty and pain of other people that's being inflicted by Donald Trump who is like you know the 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 best the greatest bully of all time despite being a you know ridiculous fancy lad himself <laughs> and if you and if you read some of John's other work which you know we couldn't get into every detail of within the film you know he talks pretty eloquently about how magic is the politics of the unheard and about how magic has always been sort of utilized by people who knew that they didn't have actual um, political agency in whatever society they were living with. And I, you know, I think living within, and I think Giorgio and I would both argue that these guys do actually have a lot of power and agency in America, but they feel as though they don't. And so, you know, me magic is used as a joke on 4chan, but, you know, we are talking about how collective imagination leads to larger social coalitions and having someone like him be able to address this stuff in a way that doesn't feel like CNN. It doesn't feel like frontline. I think he activates the viewer's imagination where you're like, am I going to take him seriously or not? This is a, this is an interesting way of approaching a subject that's on, that's, that's absurd initially. Yeah, I, I, th I think I remember being annoyed for a long time by that. And I felt it was very self-congratulatory that uh, narrative of, like we memed Trump into the White House, and I still don't think that that's true. But I think that as a narrow slice, as like a uh, as a microscope, uh, uh, you know, sample of the generalized phenomenon of Trump as a political figure scrambling people's expectations and like uh, challenging traditional ideas of what's going to be acceptable of a politician uh, can be generalized because. People on the inside of you know the people on the winners essentially of the last thirty years of of forty years now of brutal austerity in America watched Trump's rise totally inexplicably. They didn't get it, uh, and they were not understanding that the things that were making him absolutely anathema uh, as as a presidential candidate. And I mean, I was guilty of this too. I just not so much me as I assumed other people, you know, other Americans were not to the point where. The, this this spectacle 
was not disqualifying. Mm. I thought, no, most people are still close enough to like Ozzy and Harriet shit that this is not a president. But yeah. it turns out for enough people, those disqualifying elements had been turned by the brutal trauma uh, and alienation uh, and most importantly, just confusion and uh, uh, and lack of investment in the current model one way or the other of you know politics and media that it was it had completely reversed uh the polarity of what was considered like presidential what was Uh considered acceptable and what was considered good politics and that was happening to different people in different ways yeah and this is one specific slice of demographic and this is the specific way that Trump was able to short circuit right. politics. I, I think in, that's true. And, and my dad is an example of the other generational shift where he was like a Bob Dole, Christian coalition, Ralph Reed dude. And then all of a sudden he just started huffing the Rush Limbaugh, Michael Savage, Sean Hannity, AM radio, you know, six hours a day. And the anger that Trump appeals to, even though he finds Trump to be morally reprehensible he really believes that the sort of anger and vitriol of Trump is something that is absolutely um, okay, that it's necessary for America right now. Um, and he, he chooses to explain away all the other stuff. Yeah, that's the kind of broader point I think the film is trying to make is that what Chinese 16 demarcated really beyond just Trump, Trump's anathema sort of moment as a political figure is this moment where like the internet irreality and absurdity kind of folds into our collective reality right and kind of mixes the whole shit up and pepe is kind of this incredible way through which to understand this otherwise like very dizzying moment that where basically trolling becomes the body politic of american uh at least american right whatever we can diagnose yeah. it left and i would push back a little bit i i mean i agree with you that them saying like oh we meme trump into president into the presidency feels uh maybe a little over the top but i do think um, if you start to think about just how memes and people participating in meme culture and participating in social media politically, that really is like a powerful tool for coalition building. You're yeah, no democratizes. Longer, yeah, you're no longer a passive observer of a candidate. You're no longer a passive observer sitting in front of a TV watching pundits duke it out. You yourself are boots on the ground, you know, changing hearts and minds, or at least that's the way you're imagining it. And you're also engaging with, yeah, and you're also engaging in creativity away in a way that you maybe don't engage with any sort of creativity otherwise in your life. So making a ridiculous meme is actually um, making you emotionally sort of uh, intertwined with the Trump candidacy. And I think that's powerful. It's why people can't be um, sort of dissuaded from him in the face of facts. I think about... um I, you know, I, and especially in like the, the meme magic section of the film, I'm, I was, of course, thinking of uh, Alan Moore's um, conflation of magic with advertising and this idea that, yeah. you know, in a cultural context, like the magician um, takes a symbol and imbues it with intent and like through ritual action and repetition, uh, like it, it imbues it with not just intent, but also like a, a force behind it. And that with like advertising, like in any kind of magical ritual, if you get a group of people thinking the exact same thought at the exact same time and the exact same image in their head, it's sort of like it provides a force to it that can become real. And the example used in the film is of Hillary falling down on 
Like people like before that happened, people were fucking like tweet like or you know creating memes and on like just posting about how oh we're gonna we're gonna make Hillary fall down, we're gonna make Hillary die, we're gonna make Hillary be sick on national TV, and then on fucking nine eleven at the nine eleven memorial, that exact <laughs> thing happens. She falls down in front of everyone, and I swear to God, like you know, longtime fans of the show will know what a special day that was to us because it felt like that was like you know a month or two before the election. That felt like. A, a, a severe crack in, in the fucking matrix, man. And like, and, and that happened. And then she comes out of the fucking the apartment saying, I, she's literally says feels good, man. She's like, I feel good, man. <laughs> and it was just, it, uh, it's, 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 it's hard this not baffling to moment <laughs> of, yeah, of, of reality warping. And like, okay. So like, and this gets into this other thing. Like, you know, you, you, there was a moment you show at one of her rallies where someone, uh, like a four channer was like in the crowd and just yells out, Pepe, while she's speaking and it's captured like on CNN. But then correct me if I'm wrong. Didn't Hillary herself explicitly reference Pepe in like the last month or so of the election as part of the kind of broader basket of deplorables thing about Donald Trump and thus she imbued it with like 10 times greater power. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. She released an explainer written by, I mean, a staffer named Elizabeth Chan wrote, um, which also for Chan love that her last yeah. name was Chan um, uh, wrote an explainer. Um, about it, you know, and I, I'm not sure she ever said it out loud on, on video. We were looking for that, but yeah, I mean the, the campaign talked about Pepe a number of times. Well, that gets into this, like the use of it as, as a sort of ironic weapon by the alt-right it gets into this interesting question of like, um, the irony of it being a defense against anyone taking it seriously, even though the people doing it obviously take it very seriously to a certain degree, but like they're always protected by, the, by this idea that if anyone attacks them for it, because it is so transparently a, a absurd, meaningless cartoon frog that like that, you know, how could you possibly, you know, be afraid of this? But at the same time, I mean, they're well aware of what they're doing. And it's this I, this double bind where like they always have this little like uh, uh, escape uh, escape hatch to get out of like the consequences of, you know, drawing Pepe, putting people into a gas chamber. Right. Where it's like it's sort of it's a question of like, well, how do you deal with this? culturally or politically because if you come at it head on like you know with hillary clinton or whatever you're giving it 10 times more power than it had to begin with but if you just like i mean then it gets into this oh well you can't just ignore it and then it gets into this whole thing where like you know matt fury and his whole thing with the anti-defamation league like designating his his creation like a hate symbol on par with a swastika or like you know the death's head like ss or the ornamentation or whatever and I, i guess it's just like I, I don't know what the answer is here, but I mean, it just the, the, the people who do it, do, do do this and they're totally self-aware and self-conscious of what they're doing. It's like they've discovered this cheat code, but they're not wrong either. In right. that, like it, you do seem foolish when you uh, like are, are talking about a cartoon frog as like, the, you know, like the next le- stage of the Holocaust or something. Yeah, I mean, we knew when we were going to bring the film out that we were going to receive a certain kind of commentary from a certain kind of contingency on 4chan and like the kind of common refrain that we continue to get. And I will thankfully say that it's the very much the minority of commenters, but people from 4chan will be like, I can't believe like they're still think this is a hate symbol. And like, they took the bait again and like they made a whole movie about this being a hate symbol. And in their minds, like they're just fucking with everyone. And like, there is a part of that that is true, but it is also true that then it actually did become kind of a fucking hate symbol and adopted by like opportunist white, you know, white professional white supremacists, because like the whole history of organized white supremacy is really about 
trying to co-opt popular icons for their own advantage, right? This is something that David Duke like very explicitly developed in the eighties. And like, how can we ingratiate our shitty message within the mainstream without kind of tripping the typical um, social norms to kind of cancel us, right? Like how can we talk about racism out in the open and like Pepe for whatever reason kind of offered certain people that opportunity in a very, very creative way to just exact to exactly your point to say like, what you think this frog is racist? Huh? What a fucking moron you are. And it's like, yeah, it's a joke until it's not basically. Well, it's, it's also just a way of gaming the attention economy. Um, certainly for, you know, your, your own agendas and then your own, um, pleasure as well. Like we've talked about with trolling, but you know, there, it's funny, Giorgio and I spend a lot of time texting each other, various responses that people have to the film and there's a couple phrases that kind of keep coming up that, that keep that I keep thinking about, you know, uh, we're dealing with this moment where humans were just not equipped to deal with what the internet is providing with them. And there's someone who wrote us this week and was like, Oh, I'm so irony poisoned. And there is this idea that, you know, the internet now provides us with all the porn that we could ever want. It's hijacked our ability to like even have sex normally in some cases it's um, it, it's there's the, the sort of dopamine hits that the internet gives you. We just aren't equipped for. And I think the irony poisoning is a really like um, visceral way of talking about that. We weren't equipped to deal with the amount of cynicism that's coming at us. If this is the side of the internet, we choose to indulge in. And, um, and it, I, I think it's something we just have to like talk about. We have to be aware of how the attention economy works and we have to kind of just be able to talk about it amongst ourselves in a way that's like plain spoken. I will say the flip side of that comment was that he'd been irony poisoned, but that this film had opened up his heart and then he cried. And so <laughs> that was, nice. that, that is true. That, that is true. But yeah. And, and, and like, you know, back to the, like the original sort of four, 4chan context of this, the, the phenomenon of being irony poisoned or, or mining humor and meaning from, from nihilism and really like the worst that humanity has to offer. It, it makes sense in a certain context. And it's sort of like the, a, a gallows humor that is like an, an important, and I wouldn't say on its own negative way of, interpreting the world around you certainly the world that we live in now like it, may, it could even be useful um in, in in many respects but i mean like i said like i i don't know i mean we're accused of being irony poisoned all the time and you know i, I, I <laughs> certainly may be true to a certain extent but you know at the same time like i'm not sincerely i don't sincerely believe that you know bad things are good i just think bad things can be funny sometimes <laughs> agree yeah um okay so I, I don't want to undersell Matt Fury himself because he really is the main character of this documentary. And, and, and part of the, the, the power of this movie is just how him personally and his, him as, as, a, as, as a man and as an artist could not be more dissimilar, could not be more opposite or, or just more distant from like the, the grubby, mean, shitty uh, like a spectacle of cruelty and racism that... Uh, that his creation seemed to find its its way into. At what point did Matt go from being a guy who was like a, maybe a little bit perplexed, but maybe kind of a little charmed by the kind of ad hoc people creating their own versions of his character and like not really feeling proprietary about it, but just being maybe a little bit weirded out by it to going to like actively trying to pursue like litigation against someone like Alex Jones for selling a poster with Pepe on it or just being like, 
when did it go from being like a curiosity to something that he was like actively like disturbed by and felt that he needed to take after years of sort of ignoring it, take like an active steps to kind of claw back his creation from the bastardized versions of that's a, that's a, there are a couple things. I mean, in the film, he was in the film, you see that he was really um, powerfully affected by uh, a guy self published a kid's book called Pepe and Pede. It's Pepe and Centipede. And if you know, MAGA lingo, you know, Peds are people who follow Donald Trump. They're, they're MAGA, MAGA folks. And so someone had self-released this book called Pepe and Pede. And in the book, there's like, um, it's an Islamophobic kid's book. Like, um, Pepe is taking over basically, um, Washington DC, which is a farm in it. And there's a, uh, Islamic, um, cleric, obviously Obama. And so it's this Islamophobic book. And, you know, Matt really felt like propaganda, um, you know, pointed towards four and five-year-olds was something that was like very particularly evil for him. And then the other thing was because it was officially declared a hate symbol, Matt was really forced into the spotlight in a way that he initially felt uncomfortable with, but then he realized it wasn't going to go away for himself and he needed to do something. You know, there's a scene in the film where Matt's sort of talking in front of an audience and we don't get too deeply into it, but you know, that was a, that was an event sponsored by the ADL and he'd flown to, he'd flown to New York. He was supposed to be having like a talk with a panel and the panel didn't show up. So he was just kind of put on stage by himself <laughs> And he's basically staring into an audience with no notes, nothing prepared. He's not even really an expert on how Pepe is now suddenly a hate symbol, but he just has to talk in front of a crowd. And he hated that moment. And I think he kind of sat there and thought about that moment over a period of time and then realized, well, this is my situation. I need to do something about it that's proactive. So our film is really about Matt getting up off the couch and doing something and you know, I, I think that's like a I think that's a very relatable story for anyone, whether you care about artistic agency online or not. You know, I mean, it's just about I, like I, when a problem presents itself, do something. Well, I mean, speaking for myself, I mean, I can only imagine how I'd feel if, let's say, some sort of online community made up of mostly dullards and sociopaths <laughs> uh, appropriated my work and show and started to claim ownership of it. I mean, like I said, I can't imagine what that must be like for Matt Fury. <laughs> Well, like, I mean, you, you do have you have him speaking at this, this sort of like ADL TED talk, but you also have a moment where he goes into the ADL offices and talks to one of their one yeah. of their guys there to sort of like just just request like, hey, like I think I'm the guy who created Pepe. It's not a hate symbol. Is there any chance it could get taken off the official the official ADL like anti-Semitic neo-Nazi hate symbol registry? Because like, you know, I'm a children's book author <laughs> and this, you know, uh, could this is fucking up my life and also like is is a you know is is i I don't want my name to be associated with something because this isn't a hate symbol it was not created as an act of hate and the guy basically tells him "Mm, yeah i hear what you're saying but no it's staying on the hateless registry (laughs) and there's one point in the movie where you feature uh johnny ryan who's you know perhaps my favorite uh living (laughs) American artist. Oh, right on. Who yeah. talks and about talk about how, irony poison? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Who talks about how you know uh, he he let this this go for a long time and really he should have sued the ADL for defamation from mm, yeah. the beginning. <laughs> and actually, just funnily thinking about Johnny Ryan, uh, he sort of inoculated himself on any of his cartoons ever being 
memeified <laughs> yeah. by, 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 by making the original cartoon so thoroughly <laughs> disgusting and horrifying <laughs> that it can't ever go through the evolution of being made into something fucking yeah. meaninglessly cruel and grotesque because they already it's already there. Well, I, I have to say, so Johnny was the first person we interviewed for the film, <laughs> and I didn't know Johnny, but my girlfriend knew him, and the reason we interviewed him was because she had talked to him at a party at some point, and they're both friends with with Matt, and Johnny was talking about basically how Matt had won the Oscar for underground cartoons because Pepe had been declared a hate symbol and so he had no hope of ever winning. <laughs> he, he could never like basically get an accolade that, that big. He would have to get like the Tony or something from his like incredibly offensive comics. Um, yeah, I mean, that, 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 that scene is actually interesting because it was actually, if I, and correct me if I'm wrong, Arthur, but that was, it was actually Matt's idea. I mean, I mean, it was really his Which interest one? to go and, to, to go to New York and to, to pitch basically the ADL to take down. His, his, no, his, his idea was save Pepe. And he was aware that save Pepe was something that in the face of all of this other stuff coming through could, could be easily trolled, but it was something that he generally felt like he could do with his artistic community. But his idea was not to go publicly talk to anybody and he does not want to publicly oh, public speaking. No, yeah. no, no. I just meant like to go to New York and for our, the purposes of our film to go and like Whoa, speak directly. Yeah. 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 yeah like that, that was like, yeah. yeah, that was like, that was Matt. What you're seeing there. I think what's special about it is that you're seeing someone really um, self-actualize in a way and like to take a stand. And that was him really um, making an impassioned plea in a really uncomfortable situation. And like the full conversation is really it's 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 an intense conversation and you kind of see it from both sides kind of I, I would say like you on one side like yes it's absurd that you know matt's point is like it's the only copywritten image on the hate symbols database like there's no other there's no <laughs> yeah. spongebob on there and like on its face yeah that's absurd and who is he he's not like backed by disney or marvel or anything like that he's just a single artist and like the position that the adl had was like yeah, we get that. But also like, it's still kind of used in this way and we're just kind of an explainer. So, you know, I take Oren and the ADL at their word that, that their hope is that one day it'll get taken down. But, um, yeah, that's, I mean, I don't think so. The ADL's yeah. job is basically to just bang a dinger bell shaped like a swastika until everybody <laughs> pisses their pants. I mean, <laughs> they, they have rewritten the entry, um, yeah, at least. uh, to, to try to, separate matt from if they could make mickey mouse put mickey mouse on there without getting assassinated by exactly uh wet team they would do it (laughs) right (laughs) it gets attention to their fucking fraudulent bullshit oh my uh, god uh, uh, seal team six with pep with uh yeah mickey mouse emblems on there well matt no matt brings i mean like you know like uh they wouldn't dream of doing this to disney despite uh let's say walt's rather questionable associations (laughs) (laughs) but um but like you know, this brings up the issue of copyright, and right. you know, like like Matt Fury, like he, he got into the situation by not pressing the copyright thing immediately and right off the bat, which I think really elevates him, like morally and humanely, like as a protagonist for this movie, because I think he says quite justifiably, "Look, I'm an artist, so like I don't the idea of suing other artists for just creating something, even if it is sort of copying what I've done, is anathema to like you know the the my way I live my life and my sort of creative ethos." But then, like, you know, at, at a certain point, copyright, as bad, you know, as complicated and bad as a lot of our intellectual property laws are, at the end of the day, under 
our current economy, copyright law is essentially basically the only thing an artist has to protect themselves and their work from being stolen or other people just simply ripping them off and making money. And then like, but like with him, it's just not so much the idea that people are ripping him off or even making money off of it. It's like you said, yeah, like doing a children's book with Pepe that is just like, just actually racist propaganda, like crosses a certain line where I'm like, okay, like in that case, like I would wholly support him suing the shit out of those people. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, uh, Matt kind of, and he didn't, he didn't sue the shit out of them. He wasn't like seeking like damage. Right. Yeah. Yeah. He was just just like, Hey, Pay me whatever you've made from this, the sale of this. And yeah, most importantly, stop doing, stop selling it. Like you can't, like right. you can't sell this product a- absolutely. anymore. Absolutely. Matt's yeah. interest, like Matt straight up says, like he, I, th- I think the quote is like, he just wants to stop bad shit from happening. Like he, he comes from like a kind of punk rock bootleg background where the idea of, you know, reimagining cultural icons is, yeah, it's totally part of his scene. So like the, the, the whole meme experience for Pepe, I think he was, pretty interested in just as a, as a, a passive visitor of it. But like, yeah, the minute that it steps into um, propaganda and like literally making money off of it for bad shit, like you just kind of have to put the, put the law down. There's also an element to it where it's like, you know, just imagine like bands that don't want to play songs off their first album. Like he, <laughs> he drew boys club in his twenties and then stopped drawing the comic. There's only four issues of it. It's a very like DIY zine. And he just wanted to move on to other stuff. He didn't want to be defined by Pepe, but then he realized like, oh, I'm going to be defined by Pepe no matter what. I have, I have to deal with this. I became aware of Boys Club after being aware of Pepe. And I think it was actually Amber got me for my birthday a, a Boys Club collection. And it's wonderful. But That's I, great. And I, I, uh, you, you do highlight a lot of his other art and especially his, his children's books. And I was like, I mean... I, I was really blown away by uh, Night Riders and just like how gorgeous that book was and just how like sort of really like special and, and beautiful that that book was. And like like his art like is really is a lot, lot more than than these cartoons. Like he's an amazingly talented artist. And I think so I think the most reprehensible person you featured in this movie was oh, yeah. was the fucking like the the RNC like Trump campaign guy who said of Matt Fury, like, well, maybe he should be a better artist if he doesn't want people <laughs> copying his stuff. And I was like, uh-huh. oh, you absolute fucking piece <laughs> of shit. Like the idea that like, oh, like it's like it's not worth protecting because like he's a bad artist because someone can technically easily copy the it's like Mickey Mouse is pretty fucking easy to draw too but like as Matt said try putting that on a t-shirt or fucking making a movie out of it and see how fucking quickly like I said like Matt let's see how the Disney Wetworks team will fucking air you out like, no, I mean like that that's not that's not going anywhere I just fa- I found that guy so fucking repel I found that guy fucking repellent and I also noticed that he had a poster of the movie 300 in his office that was an, real another really Delicious detail. Yes, the yeah. Ann Coulter poster. Oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> Ann Coulter. <laughs> well, she's a, she's so fucking hot, go dude. dude. I'm sorry. If you the, the she's poster- a fucking smoke show. <laughs> yeah. Oh my god. Do you, do you want to talk that, about this? Man? Do I don't know. I hope that him? I hope I hope that guy's body gets colonized by like cold sores or something. We um, appreciate okay. his involvement in the film. <laughs> okay. <laughs> well, okay. Here's another digression, another character that is, is sort of stands apart from the main theme of the sort of the evolution of Pepe into something wholly different than its original creation. But I thought it was nonetheless very fitting because of how utterly surreal and baffling it was. And that is the 
the the Pepe crypto millionaire that you guys found, who is a guy who like he's he's seen in the film like just cruising around in a Lamborghini with a Pepe T-shirt, and he is a he's amassed an insane amount of I guess wealth. I suppose it's real in some sense by 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 acquiring crypto Pepe's or a cryptocurrency based on rare Pepe's. Can you can you begin to describe how what the fuck this is or how it works? He bought at an auction. Both a physical copy of, but then actually like a digital key that is like a Homer Simpson Pepe that is the rarest Pepe of all time and somehow worth millions of dollars by now or like some absurd amount of money. Can I think it's to describe how this works or what this even is. Yeah. Um, well, first, <laughs> we'll, we'll kind of go back and forth with this because, um, but yeah, I mean, there was always a joke about the Pepe economy or the meme economy. And that's like something that's gone on for years. And it's one of the reasons there's so many remixed remade versions of Pepe is because people were participating in the rare meme economy of Pepe. So that's one of the reasons it became this wildly popular meme with so many different versions of it. But yes, um, when Bitcoin was really moving, um, there were all these niche currencies and so people decided to take this joke of the rare Pepe economy and turn it into an actual cryptocurrency. So there is a cryptocurrency named Pepe Cash. And then with Pepe Cash, you can choose to buy um, various Pepe JPEGs that kind of look like Pokemon cards. And so there is a small but very um, uh, you know, invested group excitable. of guys, excitable group of guys that make these and then kind of release them as IPOs, you know? <laughs> and so <laughs> it's funny. So the, the first guy we found in that group is Marty, who goes by the name Pepe Cash Millionaire. And actually our editor's <laughs> mother found Marty, like through a Google search. So <laughs> that, that was, that's an interesting side story. Um, and uh, Marty then brought us Peter, who shows up in the Lamborghini. And before I pass it off to Giorgio to finish the question, I do think it is kind of funny to point out there's always this like um, meme. There's there's a meme within the Bitcoin world where it's it's called you, you get enough Bitcoin that you can take a Lambo to the moon. You can take a Lamborghini to the moon. And it's always a joke, but it really is sort of this libertarian fantasy. It's like I want to take my cool thing to this place and share it with nobody else. <laughs> Like, let me take my cool ass car to the, you know, the desolate landscape of the moon so that mom isn't going to tell me to like come in and clean up my room so that my friends aren't going to bug me so that no one tells me I can't do what I want to do. And so it was very important to him that he appear in the film with the Lambo because that was like a wink to the Bitcoin crew. I like that whole section. Yeah. Ever since we got off the gold standard, you know, our currency of the American dollar isn't backed by anything. It's all made up. It's all fucking fake. Fiat currency isn't real. Unlike this JPEG I've spent $30,000 on, which I suppose is backed by some. Yeah, it's backed by the full faith and credit of 4chan. I like one of the things I like about that digression is that you kind of as you go through the whole story, you're just glancing through this history of america and what specifically made this happen you know what, uh-huh. what created this class of people who would have this response to this image and one of them is the horrifying like financialization uh of like and and, and speculative uh bubble uh that has replaced any kind of actual economic engine in this country so yeah. that 
like these yeah. like the 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 basement guy you know you 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 talked to you know he he wanted the white picket fence he wanted you know a job and a family and he thinks like the culture is stopping him from having it and it's no you can't have that because that the only place to make money the only place money is made now is fucking rare pepe jpeg <laughs> being speculatively speculatively bid on by people with some fucking cryptocurrency that is mostly used for buying like fentanyl on the internet <laughs> yeah and it's just like the the combo you know i will say you know peter is probably hamming it up a bit for the camera uh, like he rented the, he rented he, the lamborghini himself well, he, and like he's like he a has a mclaren yeah he has yeah a he has a mclaren he, he's like a he's 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 a passerby in this community he just saw it kind of as like an opportunity like like any other sort of speculative type of person is whereas whereas marty is really invested in the pep rare pepe economy so like them cast against each other kind of to your point, Matt, is like it is kind of an incredible snapshot of what our state of affairs kind of looks like. It's like and, who who's feeding off of who. And it is funny, like Peter agreed to be in the film because he obviously felt like the film would improve the value of Homer <laughs> Pepe. And sure so it has. if any if anyone saw the film and liked the film <laughs> and wants to approach him about buying Homer Pepe, um we, yeah, the we story take a is gallery. Open. Yeah. We take a gallery commission, fifty percent on the sale. <laughs> we'll never be able to figure out the series of apps you have to use to get that money. But. <laughs> okay, yeah, but like, but here's the weird thing, though. Like, th- this whole thing is a story about how a drawing copied enough right. times takes on a life of its own. But then you get in this th- this cryptocurrency, which it is just a copy of a drawing whose only value is in its rareness. But I guess I'm just confused about what's preventing someone from just copying the Homer Simpson Pepe right. and making money off of it or devaluing the whole fucking market through inflation. Like, I guess that to me is that's the, that's to me is the most interesting part of it, right? Because you, if you if you look at it from the perspective of people who deal in the digital sphere for most of their experience, like their life is built online. There is an interesting notion about how you can claim ownership of a JPEG just as like an absurdist prompt. Like, oh, how could, how could I ever possibly own a JPEG? Let's like, oh, well, we'll create these like crypto keys and I can actually prove it. You can make copies of it, but I'm the only one that like quote unquote owns it, which like only could happen in America. I would yeah, say. Yeah. And some of these guys are aware of the absurdity all the stuff you're talking about and they <laughs> yeah. view it as like a Warholian prank and they, okay. they trade they trade in a bunch of other crypto and then this is like the the fun that they have on the, the side yeah. while they're like trading in bitcoin and it's just kind of an emblem of like oh i'm i'm a really intense crypto trader so much so that i've invested in these rare pepe jpegs that said it's weird <laughs> <laughs> yeah this yeah weirdness is 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 a uh, a prevailing theme in this documentary that's a uh, but it is. I mean, Marty. Marty calls himself the Pepe Cash millionaire, and so when the first time I talked to him on the phone, I viewed. I I thought that I was talking to someone who looked like Dan Blazarian or something, <laughs> who was like on the, on his yacht, you know, floating around near Tahiti or something. You know, he's the Pepe Cash millionaire. He's a millionaire, right? And then when we get there, we realize actually like, you know, being a Pepe Cash millionaire is not the same as being a millionaire millionaire. The yacht that he's living on is exceptionally modest. Um, it's mostly in dry dock. Um, you know, he is a guy that does feel like he doesn't have like economic options where he lives. And he sees Trump as kind of this like superhero who may bring him a little bit of hope, 
Um, he calls himself an internet troll, but when you ask him about, oh, how do you troll people? He doesn't really. He just kind of like takes that as like, oh, something that he would almost aspire to do. So both the Pepe Cash and just like his, his allegiance to Trump is some sort of like um, fantasy that he's choosing to sort of indulge in. Um, mm. And he is a nice guy. He's not like someone who doesn't seem to be a racist or anything like that. He's a nice, funny, unique dude. Um, <laughs> but yeah, it was, it's, yeah. <laughs> it, was, it was a funny thing to film for sure. Okay. I mean, so like, you know, it's 2020. There, Donald Trump is up for re-election. Who knows how that's going to fucking go. But it certainly seems like this time around, like Pepe, like as as a meme, as a political force, seems kind of spent. And you know, like your 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 movie is you know part of an effort to, I guess, rehabilitate or, or reclaim this. And like you know, the end of the movie, Arthur is a very very touching and beautiful animation you did of of Pepe kind of like swimming away like into a sunset and just sort of being cleansed or sort of reborn in a way. But the world that Pepe has, I won't say created, but has certainly been like an avatar of certainly isn't going away. And like, you know, it, it memes as kind of a, a, a political language and polit- particularly a political language of Trump supporters and kind of like the neo new right, white supreme, whatever neo-Nazi, whatever you want to call them. Like, you know, it, it's still there. It's like, you know, it's the Wojak or the Nordic Gamer or the, the Chad or probably ones that I don't even know about because I'm not <laughs> I, I'm not in the, the fever swamp. You've had so sex. Much, what is that? <laughs> You've had sex. Okay. Yes, exactly. I've had sex. Um, I guess like so if, if, if one would be concerned about this or like it thinks, thinks that it, it's, it's worth being confronted in a way like. I, I get the feeling that the, what the, what this what the, what your film shows in terms of like how how taking and perverting something from its original context and like getting over on the people who who who, who want it to be tied to an original meaning or don't want it to be hateful or something like that it would seem to be like if you can't beat them join them because obviously like trying to you know like warn everyone about it or be like oh Pepe's scary we we have to fight Pepe he's this hate symbol imbues it with a certain power. Is there a way to reappropriate the appropriators in a way that pisses them off? Because, I mean, obviously this is something you can't do sort of top down with like the intent to do it because like there are there are people try to do it. But like you can see the the strings, you know, you can see the intent there and it becomes a little bit desperate and grasping. So like, I mean, I guess like you can't do it with intention, but like I guess like there's some sense that like organically on its own, these things can become part of a larger cultural language that pisses off like i know like all right people get are really proprietary about their memes they mm. they love their memes and they oh hate yeah they're the, very like, mad at us we stole yeah, their memes yeah they, yeah we like they, they we they've gotten mad at us for gentrifying their memes or, or using it in a way that is contrary to their purposes and i'm just wondering if you know if it's good for the goose it's good for the gander <laughs> here when it comes to the you know if we're going to take meme warfare seriously <laughs> i you know we thought a lot about this. I mean, obviously it's, it's impossible to, to, to predict what, how a meme will evolve online. And we certainly don't think like we hope good things are in Pepe's future, but we also are aware that we're not in control of any of this. So like to the idea of uh, appropriating the appropriators, I think for, at least for me personally, what I'm interested in the film doing in terms of a commentary is really like, kind of reaffirming reality in a sense and like reminding people that it is a choice to sort of partake in the kind of internet cynicism that uh, has been wrought upon our society and like 
to remind people that they don't have to feel shamed out of their capacity for empathy. Like to me, that is a story of our generation and like our, pol- our political situation right now. It's like, are we going to build a society based off of rampant cynicism and nihilism? Or are we going to like walk towards a, towards the light basically? And like, I think, you know, COVID should be a pretty fucking stark reminder of like what, what a society looks like when you build it on cynicism. And so for me, like the film and the way we end it and just, you know, Matt is such a perfect avatar for the story is just like, he says something very pithy at the end of the film that I think on its face, you can kind of, kind of throw away as a, as a silly statement. But like in the wake of the entirety of the movie, he says like, you just got to be hardcore happy. And like, he kind of says it with a little pain. And like, I'm, I'm actually like kind of emotional talking about it right now, actually. Uh, but like, it's true, man. You know, like depression is real, but so much of what we do in our lives, we have agency over and it's a choice and it's a hard one to, to be happy. And like, there's no such thing as permanent happiness, but like, fuck man, like we, we, we can't continue down this path. And the it's first just, step for a lot, and a lot first step for people who find themselves caught in these, these cycles is log off and yeah. not, not, not thinking, Oh, I'll just like, I'll just be as miserable, but not have my one thing that makes me feel anything. It's, I have to confront my misery. Exactly. In yeah. my, in my life. Exactly. That's, and that can only happen if you take, if you burn your bridges, if you burn the ships that give you the fantasy that you can escape it by just tunneling deeper and deeper into just finding this anhedonic, uh, perverse pleasure from sadism. That could that's that could only that has to continuously get more intense and more antisocial and more hateful in order to provide any kind of friction at all. Well, hundred percent. I think to what maybe Will was getting at is you know I don't know if you can appropriate the appropriators or anything like that, but I do think that um, there's a few things that the film can do. Uh, the first thing is that it at least gives people some understanding of the original intentions of Pepe and the person who made it, and I do think that. For some people who view it that have maybe used Pepe in like a trolley fashion or a toxic way, just knowing that there was someone on the other end of that, mm-hmm. maybe there'll be like some sort of vibration that's sort of out there that's like, oh, the things that I do online in a vacuum, maybe to make myself feel a little bit better, actually do have other, you know, the butterfly effect of that is very real. And so now at least when you see Pepe as smug Pepe or whatever, you're aware that it was created with this intention by this guy. And then at the end of the film, you know, some, some like hardcore doc viewers, you know, want the sort of traditional doc ending, but we really thought that the better move for us was to create like a moment of poetry. So that's the song that Giorgio wrote. Um, it's a beautiful animation we did. And we've thought very self-consciously like this animation, we didn't show that animation to Matt until like at Sundance. And we really thought like, Oh, this is, this is Pepe sort of returning to nature and beauty. Um, we hope that it's Pepe swimming away from Matt and he can move on to different things. And we thought as filmmakers, this is just a way for us to kind of put our intentions out into the world in a very like earnest way. And, um, you know, it was something that was really emotional for us as we made it and emotional for Matt to watch. And hopefully that emotion will ring true with people who maybe no longer think that emotion is there for them. We're bringing emo back, baby. There we as, go. Yeah. As, 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 <laughs> Werner, as Werner Herzog says, the documentarian should not be a fly on the wall. It should, he should be the hornet that stings. 
And uh, yes. to that, <laughs> and to that end, I want to thank you guys for uh, for stinging us. And uh, yeah, just just, just to, to close out again with uh, with um, you know the, the the sort of pithy but quite heartfelt thing that Matt Fury says at the end of the movie about being hardcore happy. And I just what I took away from it is Matt Fury as as a human being is like the, the living refutation of all of the ugliness that became associated with his creation through no fault of his own. It's just like his creativity, his imagination, just the, the beauty of his art, but also the love he has for his friends and family and, and daughter and wife. And I just think, uh, like, you know, his, his life is the, is the, is the way to end, you know, the, the ugliness that was associated with it. It's just like a broader vision of, 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 of struggling, but like fine of, of knowing that happiness and, and some sort of creative fulfillment is out there for you. If you open yourself mm. up to it. Mm-hmm. I appreciate that, man. Yeah. yeah and- I, I don't know if, if this is too pitchy, you can totally cut it, but I think it is, I think for your audience, especially, I just want to like say that, you know, Arthur and I made this film together with a, a small group of really talented artists and stuff, and we're putting it out ourselves too. So like, um, you know, su- support in indie filmmakers and indie artists, if you can, yeah, uh, absolutely. there's no, there's no Marvel studios behind this. So like, if you've, absolutely. Uh, if you've, if you've pirated it and liked it, like, please, uh, find a way to help us out. <laughs> well, don't worry we'll be we'll be creating a BitTorrent backed cryptocurrency for oh, pirated yes. versions yes. it feels good man that we'll be we'll be cutting you in on a small percentage of um, thank you very much I, i'll leave it there giorgio angelini arthur jones i want to thank you so much for the movie it is feels good man it is now available to stream rent purchase on all types of platforms we will have a link included in the episode description if you haven't seen the movie yet i would highly recommend checking it out once again giorgio and arthur thank you so much for the film and for thank you guys so much yes thank you yeah thanks for having us it's been a pleasure later guys Like you're leaving